Welcome back, guys, to another episode of 2B Crew. It's Trey Zlata. And Josh Bish. Oh, wait, no, is not. Is Quinn, <laughs> <laughs> your producer. They finally let me on the show for a little bit. Josh was a little busy, and uh, I couldn't pass up the opportunity for today's guest. So I'm um, happy and excited to not be behind the camera and actually get to tell a little bit of my opinion. But you know. Yeah, no, I think I think you did a great job this episode. I think you guys are going to be really excited for it. We have the goat of basketball reporting, it feels like. Jackie McMullen, she's done pretty much everything and anything, it seems like. She was a Kurt Gowdy Award winner. She wrote for Boston Globe. She's been an ESPN Around the Horde participant, ESPN writer. She's done a little bit of everything and anything. And she's here to talk to us about Jordan, Kobe, Kyrie, the Celtics. You name it, you thought of it. We talk about it, even a little bit of Shaq. And uh, I think you guys are going to really, really, really like this episode. What about you? What do you think about this, Q? Uh, to be honest, man, I was a little nervous, like, just starting and opening up, the, like, just how highly esteemed she was, where I did the intro part. I was like, I hope I don't, like, I even, I was going to say her full name, but then I was like, uh, Jackie Mack, <laughs> we're here on the show. Man, I mean, I, I just not as, uh, I'm not as professional as you guys yet. I'm not as well-versed. I, I, I don't know about professional, you know, uh, I leave that to Josh Bishop, uh, who's out here studying hard for that final. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I think this this episode is going to be one you guys don't want to miss because it's one of those episodes where you learn a lot of insight into Michael Jordan, who he was. Uh, you learn about Kobe a lot and why people really respected him. And if you were a Celtics fan or if you're just a Kyrie Irving hater, one or the other seems to overlap a lot of times. Uh, you're definitely going to want to listen to near the end of the podcast where we talk about how Kyrie's relationship with the Celtics was just kind of falling apart. And she talks about who are the only guys he could trust in the locker room. Was, there was only two guys. And yeah, one of them is Duke. Uh, boy, Jason Tatum, but I'm not going to tell you the other one, so you guys going to have to listen for that. Yeah, Shreyas was just too excited about talking. About, he had to slide in. We were we were talking about two of the greatest basketball players of all time, and she was kind of, she even said that she's a little tired a little bit, or she had at least been talking about Jordan for so long, so we try to include and uh, kind of use that to push into other avenues of basketball, but uh, able to talk about Kobe, and then eventually Kobe and Kyrie, and then Kyrie obviously leading to uh, Treyas's nice little conversation uh, with her. Yeah, as yeah. The, no, the fandom was out. Men mental health too. So we have a little bit of everything. I think the the conversation will be interesting because she has a lot of perspective. You know, she wrote when the game was ours um, with basically a book that's co-written by her, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. Or like, you know, she basically talks about how they pass the torch to Jordan, and they kind of knew that was coming. And we talk about how. The 63-point game was really Jordan's coming out party to the world, it seems like. And how, you know, when Jordan was revolutionizing the league, it seemed like opposing fans had this little respect for him. Uh, and they almost cheered him off. That was the coolest part where she was saying where, like, her favorite thing was watching Jordan go to other stadiums and just and shock these fans. She said she was in Cleveland. She was actually able to be a fan as a Cel uh, at the Celtics 90 or 86 game in which he dropped 63. So, I mean, it was just really cool just to see that insight, especially for someone, I guess, who only sees these highlights. And now I get the documentary. Now, instead, it's like, it's the old war stories, you know, that you enjoy listening to and that, like, you want to sit down and hear from the people who actually lived 
during this time and saw it. So I know hundred percent. I think, I think you're hundred percent right in that. And it's really cool to hear the insight into Kobe and Michael's relationship and how much respect there was between those two. And you know, how much of a genuine friendship he had, you know, I, I thought it was interesting the way she talked about how Michael really, really loved Kobe. And I, I kind of got it, you know, when he died, they talked about the relationship. I've never really seen Michael really have that level of love for, another player like that you know like Jordan is being chased by LeBron James and LeBron James said it himself he's chasing the ghost of Michael Jordan but I've never felt like that level of reverence that Michael had for Kobe that he has for LeBron as much as a great player LeBron is and most would argue LeBron is better than Kobe that's what I thought was really interesting. I guess maybe just the play styles and the way Kobe played, he just has an immense amount of respect for him. Yeah, and you know, now this is probably where it gets a little different if Josh was on the show because he'd have his opinion and you guys would argue back and forth. But at this point, I'm just I'm just in it. I'm just here. I'm happy to be here. I'm just here to hear your opinions and everything in between that. So, But I think we had a good show for you guys. You did a great job. Really check it out, guys. And you know, you know the drill. If you like it, subscribe comment rate tell us what you think uh make sure to follow us at 2b crew on twitter and have a good one guys we are really excited today to uh, have on our podcast uh she's worked with boston globe sports illustrated espn a new york times bestseller for her books uh i I, I don't really know how more we could there there were so many a list of so many awards and everything that we could add to your resume but yeah. we have Jackie Mack on today's show Jackie how are you Hey guys how you doing today thanks we're, for having me We're doing great uh, good yeah. good getting bored missing sports but Jordan Doc has been filling up my uh free time Yeah, yeah great isn't it I'm it's been fun to relive it really fun Well that's kind yeah. of where we wanted to bring up with you and kind of um the timeline of it. and we'll get into a little bit more of the Jordan doc cuz you did mention that you're a little <laughs> little tired of it uh, I no, think no, that, no it's just uh it, there's just we it's on our network so we're trying to create every Jordan angle that you haven't thought mm-hmm. of yet that's what it is Hey well, I'm excited for that. it and that's I mean that's the whole point of the doc too that that's making you know made it so popular with everyone else you know seeing the side that we never saw so but I, I guess kind of with you for the most part you know coming out of college you were at the Boston Globe you're covering the biggest team in the NBA at this point with Celtics Lakers basically defining the lead Bergman McHale legendary Hall of Famers but for you kind of what was one of your first memories in the garden and who were some of the first players you developed relationships with well I mean Jordan falls into that category to be honest I, I went to the globe in December of 1982 I was 21 years old mm-hmm. and uh, they didn't let me near the NBA for the first few years you know yeah. there was a lot of other people in front of me but I did get to cover from time to time uh, some of the regular season games and things like that and you know Jordan was different right from the start he was everybody else was running down the floor he was gliding down the floor you know, everyone else was jumping for a rebound. He was flying through the air for the rebound. I mean, he just, the league was very different then. It was not nearly as athletic as it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, you had a lot of big men that were dominating the game. I think there was a stretch where nine out of the 10 MVPs were all centers in the league. Mm-hmm. Um, there hasn't been an MVP who's been a center in the league since Shaquille O'Neal all the way back in 2000, just to give you an idea of how the league has changed. So Gordon was something we had never seen before. 
And I liked him right away. I thought he had a, an air of confidence about him that I appreciated. He had, he was, he would challenge you. Um, you know, if he didn't agree with something you said or wrote, you would hear about it. I liked all of that. So mm-hmm. I kind of feel like we, you know, he, there were many other writers. I don't mean to say I was the only one, but I feel like I grew up with Michael Jordan in the NBA mm-hmm. a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, like going off that with the last dance dog, um, for me, kind of the way they painted the picture of it, like that 86 series against the Celtics uh, with him coming back, broken foot, I guess, and just kind of, I think that painted the picture of his relentless competitiveness for me mostly. And that was kind of him very much asserting, it was the first character test, I would say, of really putting him uh, against the Celtic team that everyone's been watching for, you know, the past decade of it um so when were you able to cut were you covering that playoff game too where you dropped so i was not covering it but i was because i didn't make the cut but i was there with my boyfriend who's now my husband of 33 years we got to be in the building we got to see the game and wow what i tell everybody that i remember about that game was you know in game one he had 49 against mm-hmm. one of the best defenders in history in dennis johnson who was a big yeah. strong guard who was such a good defender they traded for him literally so he could guard magic johnson for them mm-hmm. so now michael jordan comes in and and dj's trying to guard him and he can't and then ames tries and he can't and bird nobody can and they're double teaming him and jordan just slips right through them and it was just incredible to watch and so you know after game one dj's feeling he, you know he's saying to everybody man we we dodged a bullet there that guy dropped 49 on us and, and they didn't win I, well that won't happen again and this time and so what I remember about that, that the garden, that the old garden, which was just a great place to watch a game, even though there was obstructive view seats and it was, you know, there were lots of things wrong with it in that regard. But in terms of atmosphere, there was no better place. And what I remember is the fans there, of course, they wanted the Celtics to win, mm-hmm. but they just assumed the Celtics would. Yeah. And so because they assumed that, they actually, I wouldn't say they were cheering for Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. They were enjoying the show. Yeah. They really, yeah. they got lost in the show. And th- that's a pretty cool thing to do to the Boston Garden, who really hates most opponents. Well, for you, you know, mentioning you finally get that uh, game off as compared to, you know, being sports writers, you're always in the midst of it all. But as a fan, what would you kind of prefer? Would you have preferred covering that game, perhaps? Or were you happy oh, sure. that you saw it sure. as a fan? Because I'm a journalist, and that's <laughs> yeah. what we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was, very disappointed that I wasn't one of the, I don't know, there was 10 of us, 10. I think we had 10 people covering the game and I wasn't one of them. So I'm almost over it. Uh, <laughs> I covered many other Jordan games subsequently, including, mm-hmm. you know, I was there in 1989 for the shot in Richfield wow. Coliseum where once again, he hits this incredible shot and this building that is ready to explode because the Cavs were supposed to be the team of the nineties. They were going to be the dynasty of the nineties. And in one fell swoop, this kid, Michael Jordan, cuts their throats, slits their throats with this jumper at the buzzer, and the whole arena just dead, dead silence. Dead it was silence. so cool. It was amazing. So when I think you... one of my favorite things was to go, watching Jordan play in other people's buildings and how he just totally silenced the crowd. Mm-hmm. Silenced the crowd or impressed the crowd or just because you, you, you just couldn't believe what you were seeing. It was special. Well, I guess I get with the with that on that '86 game. At that point, was he kind of on your spectrum? Like, had you covered him before, seen him 
or covered I, mean, um, I think I'd probably even talk to him, but um, not Red. You know, it was only his second year, and he had missed most of yeah. the second year. So I really didn't know him at all. It was after that that I really started covering the NBA full-time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I was around for the 87 finals between the Celtics and Lakers. I was very much immersed in um, the league after that, and that's when I really got to see him and get to know him a little bit. And, you know, he was very accessible. He was fun to be around. He enjoyed the banter with the media. I've mm-hmm. told this story a bunch of times. I went on an off day to um, one of this the Bulls practices, and they used to practice in this like like health club. And there were there was a gym, and then mm-hmm. there was a general area where everybody could lift weights, not just the Bulls. Joe Schmo up the street could lift weights, and I remember standing there. He was lifting weights, and I was talking with him and. You know, two or three fans were listening in on our conversation. It was a very different vibe. And yeah. I used to go early to the games, and mm-hmm. I'd go in and talk to all these guys before the games because I always found that was the best time. Most of them had a pregame routine. They'd get shots up, and then they'd go and kind of sit in their locker room and relax. The rules are all different now. You're not allowed into the locker room until a certain time, and you're only allowed to be in there for 45 minutes. And you can't get anything done in a locker room these days before mm-hmm. the game. No players talk it's it's empty it's cavernous but he was different and that's how i developed my relationship with him yeah i know you referenced that before where like now it's difficult for journalists to kind of get that inside look into players and their mindset for you as a journalist what's kind of changed in your approach to trying to develop these relationships with these players and how you've covered the league and how it is now well, access is a problem, right? It's a problem. It's it gets it just keeps shrinking, and who knows what this pandemic has done for access to players? Because uh, when and if the NBA returns, it will definitely be without fans, mm-hmm. and I suppose there's a there's a chance it may be without media. I don't know, and uh, you know, I, I know some players have already called for having the locker rooms closed. That's something that's been talked about for a long time. But I can tell you some of the biggest stories that you've ever read, some of the most important stories you've ever read have started because someone was in the locker room developing Mm -hmm. relationships and talking to these players. So, uh, and players, I think they forget sometimes that the media, while they find them an annoyance occasionally, they also build their reputations. And I mean, you don't have to look much further than Michael Jordan to understand that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess, Seeing uh, the documentary and kind of how I think there was a few times in the documentary when journalists are asking uh, Michael questions about Scotty's um, like contract and he's like, we want to talk about the game or we want to talk about Scotty's contract uh, throughout kind of what is uh, what was is that kind of a good showing of who, how he was with the media, would you say constantly or how would you well, say? Well, it's near the end, remember. So, the, the you know, yeah. the last dance is 97, 98. It's the last year. Sure. So there was two sequences, two, you know, the first three championships when Jordan was, you know, he, he was still very famous and the mm-hmm. best athlete in the world and, you know, this Nike icon. But it was very, very different the second go around. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't, he, he had to have security guards and he didn't have just one. I think he had like five. Wow. He had marketing people around him. He had to be insulated because everybody wanted a piece of him. And I mean everybody, his teammates, the media, uh, marketers, the, the league, everybody. And so I think that he had to cancel out some of that noise and really insulated himself with a very small group of people that he trusted. He had a, always had a great 
support group from his native North Carolina, people that he grew up with, people, many that were much older than him that he trusted and believed in. And, and I think his circle got smaller and smaller as the crowds got bigger and bigger. So I, you know, if you watch this documentary, you will rarely see me in those scrums mm -hmm. uh, because I just never thought it was a good way to go about business. So I always yeah, try to, yeah. in, you know, try to develop some kind of conversation off to the side, which isn't always possible. Yeah. Well, have you seen the doc all all the way through at this point? Did you get? Did I've you get... seen the first eight episodes. Are they holding back on the other one... two? And I'm not going to tell you anything. <laughs> we know. That. I understand. I'm going to enjoy it. It just gets better and better. I know you mentioned that the Jordan you know is about to be revealed, and like you know, I know Quentin was saying, um, at least to him, you know, the the mindset for the most common NBA fan, you think Jordan is this kind of mythical hero type figure. And at least if you're a hardcore NBA fan, you always knew at least with the like the interactions of Jordan has been, you know, kind of standoffish to say the least. Um, what is something that we're going to see in the doc or, you know, that's not even in the doc that you kind of like reaffirms this kind of hyper competitive nature that Jordan had. Can you give us a little sneak peek with it? <laughs> I can't tell you anything that's in the doc. I'm really, I swear to God, I really can't because really? that was one of the things we were bound to do. Um, yeah. if we can't release anything, can't reveal anything that's coming out, but just in general, um, you know, I've, I talked to Jordan, um, I picked my spots. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't bug him a lot. Uh, I've probably done two fairly important interviews with him over the last four years, five mm -hmm. years. One of them was when Kobe retired. Yeah. Uh, I did a story with Kobe Bryant on how all his mentors, who, how he learned a little bit from all these NBA greats and how he took a little piece of them and, and you know, tried to improve his career. Clearly Jordan was his model. He, had, he mm -hmm. idolized Jordan, loved him. And I tried to get Jordan for that story. I thought it was important. I mean, I had talked to Dr. J, to Jerry West, to Larry Bird, to Hakeem Olajuwon. Those are just some of the other guys that he mentioned to me, and I got them all. And uh, I finally did get Jordan. And one of the things that I didn't realize until that night, and this so you just have to do the math, whenever, whatever year Kobe retired, this is when I was talking with him. He was talked so affectionately towards Kobe. And I was used to him talking trash about opponents and, you know, telling me the weak, the one weakness of whoever the opponent was. And, you know, like I remember talking yeah. to him about the Cavs when it was tied two to two in that series in 89. Mm -hmm. You know, we were talking about Bad Doherty and Mark Price. And when we got done, I kind of said, oh, you know, they're, but they're, they're nice guys. And he looked at me and he said, maybe too nice. You know, and those are the kind yeah. of comments he would always make. But it was not like that at all with Kobe. He was very affectionate about talking to men about he really had great respect for Kobe and he, he felt bad for Kobe because he said, you know, the poor guy, all everyone ever is going to do is compare him to me and he's going to come up short and he deserves better than that because he worked his tail off and he, you know, like me, rarely took a day off, you know, played every possession, played both ends of the floor. So I saw this very soft side to Jordan that I was surprised that he was so, um, you know, effusive in his praise for Kobe. And then, um, of course, Kobe, you know, his tragic passing yeah. mm -hmm. and you saw Jordan at the funeral. And I guess I sort of had had a sneak peek of that um, mm -hmm. some years before. Well, and that's, I think, uh, leading in in a second into Kobe. I think uh, one of the things I've out of the doc that has been revealed to me is I, I was listening to Cowherd talk about Al Michaels or Al Michaels came on a show talking about a story with MJ and they were playing and golf in Hawaii. MJ's retired at this point with the Wizards and some story to the extent of Al said 
they were watching ESPN and off in the distance, they're like 50 feet away or something, but MJ still able to um, read like the ticker at the very bottom, like something that no one, no one normally would have. And it's like a superhero thing. And he said that he remembered walking away uh, thinking like, wow, this guy is actually like superhuman. Is there some story that maybe like how you're mentioning some other side of MJ that people hadn't seen that you were able to see that might even be like on a superhero level that I, I guess well, credit. See, I, I, the funny thing about this to me is I think we've done Michael Jordan a disservice mm-hmm. in a way yeah. um, because everybody wants him to be superhuman and, yeah. and he wasn't. He mm-hmm. missed shots. Mm-hmm. He missed big shots. He missed game wing shots. He turned the ball over sometimes. He made mistakes. And that's what all human beings do. Yeah. And I, it's why I have so much respect for him because those mistakes never stayed with him. He just went on to the next. And one of the other times that I talked at length with him in the last few years was last year. I did a story on pressure, yeah. on how do elite athletes handle pressure. And he was telling me that, you know, you would think, well, John, Michael Jordan's never been nervous a day in his life. Absolutely false. Yeah. He's nervous before a lot of big games. In fact, he said his palms used to get so sweaty he told me they'd be so terribly sweaty that you know the rosin you, you would always see him put yeah. rosin on his hands mm-hmm. yeah. that was why because his nerves would get so jangled up and they'd go right to his palms and his palms were so sweaty that unless he used that rosin he couldn't catch the ball now once the game started all the nervousness disappeared mm-hmm. and this is a common thing among elite athletes i mean mike uh, bill russell used to throw up before every game and then mm-hmm. once the ball went up he was fine you know in this story that i did they all talked about nervous things that they had before a game with with Steph Curry for instance he gets a very sour stomach mm-hmm. but then the minute the game starts it goes away and so in that regard and in so many regards Jordan's no different than any other player in that regard yeah. he got nervous just like everything else he was nervous before game five against mm-hmm. Cleveland he was probably nervous in game two in Boston but once the ball went up the nervousness went away and mm-hmm. it became an, an asset instead of a weakness mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, off of a, going off of another piece that you wrote, remembering Kobe, and you had talked about the relationship uh, between Kobe and Michael. I think uh, the thing that I enjoyed most about see or reading that piece that you did was it seemed like just the whole basketball world kind of some way you were able to talk to the basketball world throughout that. So for you on the day uh, where we found out the news about Kobe Bryant, um, kind of what was what was it like for you one but also what was it like texting and hearing what well, it was a chaotic how was it hearing from charles yeah. barkley michael and like, yeah, the sincere emotions from it well i was actually in colorado i was at breckenridge skiing <laughs> my daughter lives in colorado so my husband and i took a vacation we a very rare in season vacation we just were doing a long weekend we flew out there we didn't miss our daughter we were skiers we love to ski mm-hmm. so we were we were at the top of the mountain it's right around lunchtime, I think, in Denver time. And some total stranger came up to me. And, you know, I get recognized from time to time. But I had ski gear on. it. I was surprised. But And he said, oh, my God, isn't it awful? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. And he said, yeah. you haven't heard. Now, I had my phone in my jacket. Yeah. But I was not working. I wasn't looking at my phone. <laughs> and to be honest, my I could tell mm-hmm. something horrible had happened. And my first thought was, oh, no, something happened to Larry Bird. Because mm-hmm. people equate me with Larry Bird because I'm from Boston. And I, <laughs> him and I wrote books with him. And, and I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. Larry. 
And he said, Kobe. I said, what about him? He said, he died. And I said, are you? I said, this isn't funny. He said, no, no. He died in a helicopter crash. And I was just, my, my daughter was with me. We were just stunned. Mm-hmm. Like, stunned. I, I just, so I got my phone out. And of course, my phone had blown up. You know, if I wasn't skiing, I would have heard it. Yeah. So I'm at the top of a mountain. And I'm not like at the top of the mountain where you can just ski to the bottom. I got to ski here and over to here. And then I got to take this gondola down. And then I ended up just skiing down. But and I had to take a bus to get back to the condo. And I did have my laptop with me because we always have our laptops with us. So mm-hmm. I'm riding back on this bus with my skis and I've left my family behind. And and I'm like, it just, you know, felt very surreal. And then I'm starting to hear from people that I work with. And so when I got back to the condo, I kind of just had to compose myself a minute because it was very shocking. And, you know, I, I liked Kobe a lot. Kobe was mm-hmm. great to me, me and many other journalists. He was, he played us all like a fiddle. He was very, <laughs> um, but you know, I had a lot of personal interactions with him. And uh, so when I started calling these guys, mm-hmm. they were all in tears, all of them. Mm-hmm. Now, Jordan, I just texted. And you know, it's funny. I, I have Jordan's text number. I never use it. Never. Mm-hmm. I think this might've been the second time ever I've ever done it. And I said to him, you know, I never reach out to you like this, but I'm, all I can think of is Kobe and that story we did. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's when he texted me, you know, no words. I can't even talk right now. And and a lot of people later said to me, well, that was a little dramatic, wasn't it? This is before he had done the service. I said, no, 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 you guys don't understand. Like he really cares about Kobe. And I knew that mm-hmm. from my conversation. With him. But Barkley, you know, he was in tears. All these guys, Jerry West could barely speak. You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was a very tough day. And as a journalist, the last thing you want to do is, be, be reaching out to these people who you know are suffering but mm-hmm. thankfully most of them understood the job you know yeah yeah so i know you know going into the relationship with kobe and Shaq was you know volatile early days at least to say the least and you know it seemed like that a lot of people think that's the reason why that title connecting team broke down um at least the general public thinks so. But it seems like as soon as Shaq kind of retired, the relationship evolved into a friendship. And it seemed like they were getting into a stage of where they were great friends. And that day that Kobe passed, unfortunately, I've never seen Shaq like that. I've never seen him where he just didn't seem like himself. He wasn't laughing. He wasn't joking around. I've never seen Shaq act like that. Can you talk about the relationship from playing together and how it evolved into the friendship that we see or we saw? Yeah, I think I think it was a little, little more complicated than that, to be honest. Um, it was Shaq's team. Mm-hmm. Kobe was a rookie, and it, Kobe wanted it to be his team. Mm-hmm. It really was as simple as that. Two alpha males, very competitive. Both wanted to win, but both really thought they should be number one. Mm-hmm. And in the early going, you know, for those three titles that they won, Shaq really was the number one. Mm-hmm. And then Kobe was getting better, and Shaq was getting older, and Shaq's body was breaking down a bit. And then, you know, so you have the split. By the end, they really, by the time they left, you know, by the time Shaq left, they really hated one another. I mean, there was a time period, and I don't care what, they, they always liked to say, oh, it was all for you, it was all for show. No, it wasn't. They really disliked one another. But almost immediately after they got some time and distance, which is true with everybody, I think, if you have an, you know, an argument with someone or you're just tired of seeing the same person day in and out. You put a little space between you and, and nothing looks as bad as it did before. And mm-hmm. I think that's what happened. And I think that happened over time. And yet I still think they were very competitive with one another. They were able to turn turn it off and put aside their distances around their children, 
Both of them were excellent at that. They never brought their families or their children into their, mm-hmm. their little rivalry. They, they always treated each other's kids with great respect and affection. So that was all genuine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think near the end, you know, I think Kobe and Shaq came to an understanding. But I think the emotions you saw from Shaq, it was really more, I think, and it's just my opinion, mm-hmm. regret. You know, I never really made it completely right with that guy. I figured we had the rest of our lives to do that. And man, we never really did quite get it right. That's Mm -hmm. my interpretation. And like, you know, just going off that, I know you wrote like a five part series on like the mental health and the NBA. I thought it was really cool because kind of showed how human these guys really are. You know, we we watch them and, you know, we think, oh, they're millionaires. They're not going through the same problems that you or me or Quinter or anybody's going through. But it made it very relatable. You know, we had guys like DeMar DeRozan talk about his depression and opening up and Kevin Love with his anxiety and stuff like that. What were your thoughts, you know, after it seemed like when with Kobe's passing, the players just didn't want to play basketball that day and who could blame them? Um, yeah, not unusual. You know, the day that Larry Bird found out Magic was HIV positive, he had to play the next day. And mm-hmm. he said it was the first time in his life he didn't feel like playing basketball. So to me, that's a, a very honest fair uh, emotion and reaction to, you know, Kobe, I think for a lot of guys, Kobe, Kobe was, you know, Barkley said it in the piece I think I wrote on Kobe. He always kept moving. He was friendly, shook your hand, how you doing? But he kept moving. He wasn't close with a lot of people. He was close to Michael, but he was not close with a lot of others. He just wasn't, he chose not to be, but they all looked up to him. There was a whole generation of players that really, really looked up to them. And what I found was, you know, and talking to say Gary Payton and guys like that who have children who play now, mm-hmm. you know, whose kids are playing. What they when they really grew to love Kobe was when how gracious Kobe was to their kids mm-hmm. and how great he was because Kobe was great with kids, everybody's kids, my kids. I mean, he met my daughter, my daughter, you know, almost fell over still to this day. <laughs> and, and so he was great with everybody's kids. And these young players would, you know, like I'm sure, and I don't, you know, Gary Payton probably texted him and said, hey, my, my son, you know, is trying to play, blah, blah, blah. Could you give him five minutes? And Kobe always would do that. And mm-hmm. with men or women, girls or boys, he was fantastic that way. Mm-hmm. So I think he developed in his retirement this real collective affection from these older players whose kids were the next generation. And I think he, he did a wonderful thing for those kids by sharing his knowledge and, and being willing to talk with them. Um, Greg Anthony is another one. You know, his son played at Carolina this year. He's another one who Kobe went out of his way. You know, he talked to Sharif um, mm-hmm. O'Neal, Shaquille's son, um, a lot of these guys. And so I think that's really where Kobe, the the affection for Kobe really was starting to build among some of the, the older players because mm-hmm. they really appreciated how, how generous he was with his time. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of one of the ones that, uh, I, I guess what surprised me was the relationship he had with Kyrie Irving as well. And we'll get into, uh, Shreyas has his own question about Kyrie a little bit because he's the Celtics yeah. fan here. But I, I guess coming out of it, was there any, did, were you able to hear from Kyrie on that day as well? Or, you know, or, I didn't, you know. no, I didn't. Um, I didn't know that Kyrie and Kobe were close. That was a surprise. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, shouldn't have been because they're both, you know, they were both great competitive players. And and really, one thing about Kyrie, he was not afraid to reach out to people that he thought would make him better, just the way Kobe had dead, done when he was young. And Kobe told me when he retired, anyone that wants to reach out to me, I'm going to be happy to talk to them. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I guess that kind of leads into Shreya's question as the Celtics fan, the more lighthearted about Kyrie. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting with with Kyrie, you know, it seems like the city of Boston isn't going to have that love for him. Uh, and definitely he was a little bit misunderstood seeing it from the perspective. It seemed like he just wasn't into it as much with his grandfather's death and everything else. It seemed like it's unfair reputation-wise. What really happened with the relationship there? Was it just something, you know, it, the first season it worked, the second season it kind of fell apart because of a variety of reasons? Or was it just like, you know, he just wasn't a good fit or what? It definitely wasn't a good fit. Um, <laughs> yeah, Kyrie's complicated. I, I, have, I like Kyrie. I always have. Um, but he's hard to understand sometimes. And I talked to him a great deal while he was in Boston. And, um, but he just, he's kind of a, his own worst enemy sometimes. He, he just, you know, even in Brooklyn, he was there a short time and he, he makes things difficult. And I don't know why he does that. I don't want to, I don't want to speak for him. Mm-hmm. Um, it's never easy with Kyrie. Every place mm-hmm. he's gone, that's been true. And I think in Cleveland, LeBron had the upper hand. So LeBron could, you know, keep him in check, if you will. Mm-hmm. And he chafed on, you know, chafed from that and, and moved on from it. He's mm-hmm. an unbelievable basketball player. That goes without the saying. Um, you know, it was interesting that he mentioned his mental health, I thought. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that I had tried to talk to him about before. But, mm-hmm. of course, I would never have shared that with anybody because um, that's everybody's own personal business. But he has now since publicly indicated that, you know, he was struggling with some things. And mm-hmm. I'm not surprised at all that that's the case because that's what I always suspected. But again, it's not for me to out people who I think are having mental health issues. That's never going to be what I'm going to do. And Mm -hmm. I certainly wasn't going to do it in the case of Kyrie. But Kyrie just, you know, he was happy until he wasn't. Um, There was some conflicts with Danny Ainge, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, Near the end, he seemed to lose faith in Brad. Uh, I'm not sure why. Um, He definitely had issues with some of the younger players, Jalen Brown in particular. You know, his his two allies in that locker room were Jason Tatum and Marcus Morris, for sure. And uh, it just it wasn't a fun year for anybody, not just Kyrie. It's wrong to blame Kyrie for everything. Yeah, no, I agree. Column about that. You know, I wrote a whole column about that. Like, all those no, other guys had to take responsibility, too. But when he left there mm-hmm. and Kemba Walker came, it really was night and day. There's just no way around it that's just it, it, Kemba has a very positive infectious attitude just from an outsider perspective looking in he seems like the guys just seem a lot happier I don't know if it's just yeah. his leadership style or what I mean I didn't expect them to be this good this year yeah no they've been really good and part of it is Kemba being willing to say look I'm here I'm the leader but I'm just holding the place I'm just holding the place for Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown because they're going to be this future stars and I'm just trying to get us there trying to help them get there. And that's a very gracious way to be. And I think he's very genuine in that. Remember now, Kemba Walker hasn't been to the playoffs very much. Kyrie Irving came in having won a championship. Mm-hmm. And Kemba Walker has barely made it out of the first round of the playoffs. So mm-hmm. he's he's just really thrilled to be part of a winning program. Well, anytime we can talk about Celtics, Shreyas gets really excited <laughs> with it. So we, we appreciate you taking some time and uh, helping him out, giving him the insight on it. But uh, we hope you're doing well. Have you at least been able to see your daughters a good bit, I guess, with this break from yeah, basketball? Well, no, not at all. Uh, not at all. She's in lockdown in Denver, and we're in Massachusetts. And uh, I, my, my son works in the city, and for a financial company, they installed an encrypted computer in his apartment, so he's not home either. So all my friends here in my suburban town are 
saying how fun it is to have family dinner every night. My husband and I are not experiencing that. So I can't wait for this to be over. I mean, I have elderly parents in Florida that I want to mm -hmm. go see and I, I want to go see, check on my daughter and see her. So, you know, but everybody's healthy. We're lucky for that. And I know a lot of people that is not the case for their families. So I'm just hoping every, we can all get through this the best we can. Oh, maybe yeah, a ski no, trip. Fingers the, crossed then soon. Yeah, maybe a right. ski trip like, could be scheduled at the very end of it all. But uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe. They, they, they still have snow. They still have snow. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. We'd be all set. But, uh, well, thanks, Jack. We know you're busy. So right, thank you so much Enjoy. for coming thank on so the show. Thank you so much for coming on.